Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with the legendary singer-songwriter Graham Goldman. Graham's written such classic songs as The Things We Do For Love, No Milk Today, Dreadlock Holiday, Bus Stop and I'm Not In Love. It would be fantastic if you could subscribe to the podcast, like, share, rate and review it because doing all of those things helps more people to find it in the future. You can find out more information about me and the projects that I'm working on at robertlaymusic.co.uk and I'm on social media as Robert Lane Music. All right, here's my conversation with Graham Goldman. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you, Robert? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Uh, for anyone listening in, we're a couple of weeks into our uh, lockdown in the UK. So how, yeah. how has that been affecting things? Should you have been out playing some shows at the moment? Yes, we should have been. We, we cancelled uh, two uh, lots of shows. Uh, we've been fortunate in that we've been able to reschedule them for later in the year, and hopefully they'll take place. Were those shows to support the new album, which is, has only just been released, hasn't uh, it, this month? Yes. Um, there was a Heartful of Songs show, which is the acoustic show that I do. Yeah. Um, that was due to start in uh, last month. And uh, there was also some uh, 10cc dates in uh, in Europe, uh, a big run of dates. Uh, but as I say, we managed to reschedule them. And um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that, that we've done that. Yeah, it's great. When things are a bit more back to normal, we'll hopefully be able to yeah. pick all those things up again. Yeah, yeah, And that's, that's the new album, Modesty Forbids, which was just out yeah. this month, which I was listening to today and yesterday. It's a great album. And I, I, love, that, I love that opening track, which tells the story yeah. about <laughs> working with Ringo and his all-star band. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was a uh, quite an experience. And um, when I was writing songs for the album, uh, that was, uh, you know, something I, I wanted to write about uh, because it was such a, a brilliant experience. And um, I wrote that song really quickly, um, thinking about all my, you know, what had happened to us on the road, etc., and what it was like. Um, and then sort of about halfway through recording it, I was thinking about, I was using real drummers on every track. Um, I, I, I mean, in the past, I've used very good programmers. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes using real drums, sometimes not. But I'd made a decision that it was all going to be uh, all, all real drummers, and uh, so it seemed a bit of a no-brainer as to who I should approach to play the drums on that. I was going to ask if it was because I thought that sounds like it would be Ringo, <laughs> and it would make a lot of sense. How easy is it yeah, to ask yeah. a Beatle to play on your album? I don't do that every day, <laughs> but um, I'm very glad that I did. <laughs> Had you worked with any of them previously? Uh, not really. I mean, Paul McCartney had uh, visited our Strawberry Studios in Stockport. This was in the early 70s. Yeah. He was actually recording an album uh, with his brother, Mike McGear, uh, at our studio. We were actually in the middle of recording the Sheet Music album. Mm-hmm. And so we would be there during the day, and then Paul would come in with his guys later on in the day. So there was a lovely sort of crossover of... Uh, of, of us work, you know, not working together, but being together 
and playing each other's stuff and uh, it was absolutely brilliant and I think uh, there's always been a Beatles influence on everything that I've done and, and 10CC of course um, and uh, I think his presence is almost felt on the sheet music album. I was sort of going to ask you about that actually some of the people that you've either written with or uh, you know played with over the years and what they've sort of brought to things or what you've learned from them so I'm thinking about people like Neil Sedaka who the, the musicians from 10CC were yeah. involved in a couple of his albums, I believe. Oh, well, there's so many people, but Neil um, holds a very dear place in my heart because um, he was there sort of at the beginning. What, we recorded an album with him just before we formed 10CC and just after we'd formed 10CC. Yeah. Uh, so working with him was quite an education uh he was very, very, uh, and still is, I assume, <laughs> very professional, always very well prepared um, before he came in the studio, you know, sort of consummate professional. Mm. Uh, so as well as having great songs, he would have great, uh, you know, he'd always be ready to do a lead vocal. In fact, when, the way we recorded it, uh, the first album, and I always get the albums mixed up. There were two albums, a solitaire album and a, an album called The Trial Our Days Are Over. Yeah. I always get them mixed up, which has which one was first. But anyway, <laughs> the way we'd record is that uh, Eric Stewart would uh, engineer, uh, Lowell Cream and I would play guitars, uh, and Kevin Godley would play drums, and Neil would play the piano and do the lead vocal at the at the same time. Wow. And that's why we we recorded the album in two weeks, um, <laughs> because. We weren't spending hours and hours doing, you know, the lead vocal, yeah. which normally is obviously one of the most important elements. Um, and so it was a joy to work with him and uh, really enjoyed it um, and sort of stayed friends with him over the years. Did you write with him? No, no. He didn't need any writing part, <laughs> help with the writing. So everything was ready to go as soon as he came in? Everything was ready to go. Uh, initially, I met up with him. What happened was... Um, he was doing a series of concerts at the Batley Variety Club, which was one of those working men's clubs yeah. near uh, in Yorkshire. And uh, he was staying at the uh, the Queen's Hotel in Leeds. Uh, and our manager at the time had uh, uh, met him and said, "You should, while you're up, up north, you should come and make an album at our studio, uh, so, which he did. <laughs> and it was like one of those ideas that um, that actually, you know, uh, found root and uh, I went to see him and recorded a load of stuff with him took the song stuck that, that that tape back to the studio and mm. wrote some sort of rough chord charts and, and off we went and it was an absolute joy to work with him Fabulous. I was also listening to, I think it's your first solo album, The Graham Gordon Thing and I right, yeah. was reading from that that John Paul Jones was involved in the string arrangements he did all the arrangements, uh, not just string arrangements, but all beautiful oh, woodwind on that on that album as well. Um, the the original idea was that Peter Noon from Hermes Hermits was going to produce it, but he, he actually didn't show up. So it was myself, John Paul Jones, and uh, Eddie Kramer, who was the uh, recording engineer. You know, the three of us really made that album together. That's Eddie Kramer of Jimi Hendrix. Fame. Yeah, brilliant. The Eddie Kramer. Yeah. <laughs> And recorded at Olympic Studios, most of it. And with Modesty Forbids, there seems to be quite a theme of um, the challenges that are, were facing the world 
you know, we were all yeah. talking about up until about three or four weeks ago. And I'm just wondering how, you, right. how you reflect on actually how relevant it is to the situation we're currently in. Yes, well, I think uh, the songs I'm writing now are obviously different from the songs that I was writing, you know, in the 60s, yeah. in that the subject matter, are, they're going to be a bit more serious, a bit more adult. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be writing about um, like meeting a girl or anything like that because um, it, it would just be ridiculous, you know, for someone of my years to be writing songs like that. So you turn to personal experience and things that you are aware of. I mean, I'm not the only one writing about climate change. There's loads of people are doing it, but it is very important. And, um, you know, I think we all do our little bit to try and, bring it to the attention of people uh, about what's going on. I mean, people, obviously, they already know, really. But yes. I suppose putting it into music is a, is, uh, is a way of, you know, putting your uh, your aura in about what's going on. But, but really, I mean, songs like Standing Next to Me um, obviously comes from personal experience mm. of, of a, a real event. Um, the, the track two on the album, That's Love Right There, is also um, based on uh, something real where, um, obviously in a very different sort of vein, but um, with her, you know, she used to leave, when I go on the road, she leaves little notes in my case and little bars of chocolate. And um, that idea came from me being with the boys on, on the road one day, finding one of these chocolate bars that, I held it up and I said, that's love right there. Uh-huh. And um, I'd sort of created a title and I thought, mm, that might be a nice idea for a song and worked backwards from the uh, from the title, um, which uh, is a song that is kind of out of my comfort zone style-wise and mm. it's a very kind of jazzy swing type song. But yeah. uh, I think it works really well. And uh, I'm re- that's one of the songs I'm the proudest of on the album uh, in, in that uh, I think because it was something unusual for me to do and that's why I put it as a second track on the album so the first track style wise might be something that one would expect but the second as a second track that's what I wanted to go you know you're not going to get exactly what you, you know what you might think you're going to get here. Fantastic which is a, th- a through line in a lot of your work I think isn't it it's a very it seems as if you've been interested in being eclectic over the course of an album even, but certainly over yeah. the course of a, a longer project. Yeah, I suppose it's because I've, you know, I've obviously been in love with music since I was very, very young. And uh, over the years, I've listened to so many different styles of music. And then for me, there's good music and bad music. So it doesn't matter whether it's classical music or or country or swing or whatever it is. uh if it's good, you know, it, it touches you. And that, that's really all I want to do is make people feel what I'm feeling when I'm writing the song. Yes. Uh, so even if they get half of what I'm feeling, I'm, I, then my job's done. In fact, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, well, there's one song I wrote with the late Andrew Gold called Ready to Go Home um, that we do in the, in the 10CC show. Um mm. And I often get people coming up to me and saying, you know, that I, I, I'm sorry, but I cried all the way through that song. Mm. And it, it, if that happens and you know you've moved someone to that extent, then you're, it's kind of like your job is done. Um, 
I don't want them to be upset, but I, I know that they're expressing some sort of feeling and feeling better for it. Yes. So, I mean, to have the, the um, be able to do that, uh, I think is the most wonderful, wonderful gift. Yes. I often ask people on this, what is your definition of a successful creative thing? So in your case, would that be the thing? If a song connects with someone in that way, is that the, the mission? Yeah, achieved? I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's a song that we wrote after a discussion about talking about we both lost our dads at that time. Right. And that's how the song came from that discussion. And so we were, I thought it was therapy for us mm. to actually write the song and people hook into that. And, uh, you know, I know people have used it at funerals and things. And uh, I, I think that's amazing and, and very, it's kind of, even though it's, it's very sad, it's very rewarding that people can use that um, in, some, uh, in some way to help themselves mm-hmm. is amazing. And, of course, obviously, the other thing is, on the other side of it, I mean, if you can make people dance or make people sing along. That's mm. one of the most satisfying things uh, at any sort of gig that I do. When people are mouthing the words and singing along and, and you can see the um, kind of the the expressions on their faces. And I, I noticed that in particular, maybe more so because I was slightly an, a, a, at the side rather than being the center of the thing. We were working with um, with... Ringo, and I, I, there is a line about that in the song where you see, you look out into the audience and you see some people you think, you know, shouldn't you be at home? You know, they're <laughs> really quite old, probably the same age as me, but look, looking very old to me. And you can see the kind of, you see what looks like a, a grandma, that mm. suddenly time has slipped you know yeah. removed uh this, this this person sort of out of shell and and suddenly there's this sort of 16 year old girl mm. uh in awe of her hero and yeah. it's the most beautiful thing to see i ask people if they know when they've written something that's really successful so of all the hits that you've had and oftentimes people don't really they know if something's good but in terms of what actually is going to yeah. make the difference into connecting with a lot of people because you'll have so many songs that haven't quite done that but there's you still feel they're equally as good i imagine yes yeah there's lots of songs i mean for a song to be completed it has to have its sort of i call it like it has to have its own legs so to speak to, to get finished right um and you wouldn't finish anything that you thought was crap really mm. um but sometimes you you suspect that a song is it's really, really good, and you know that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I've been involved in written songs or co-written songs that uh, initially uh, I thought had no uh, commercial, um, would, would, would have no commercial success, but I was completely wrong, and vice versa. So, you know, you can think what you want, but what really happens in, in reality is something quite different. That's that's my experience anyway. Mm, it's almost alchemy, isn't it? It's kind of you, you have an experience of what's good and what's not, but in terms of what does the extra bit, it's it's unknowable. What I guess. is that extra little bit of magic that you don't even know is in that ingredient is in there that's tipped it over? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you one thing that happened with um, when we were recording the things we do for love. Yeah, there was a, an actual. I remember a tipping point where 
we'd recorded the track and got a lot of the vocals done and Eric was uh, doing some backing vocals and so I was in the control room, he was in the studio and he added one harmony and I remember saying to him, that's it, we've just, you've just tipped the song over into what I think, you know, could be a hit because Mm. it just sort of just changed everything that one element but of course the song is um, and a recording is many many elements that's it and you guys were at that point you sort of working in the studio all the time so did song yeah. did songwriting happen in the studio or were songs brought into the studio and how much uh, was the studio part of the songwriting process a, a mixture of both really we we did start writing more and more in the studio um, and that worked really well for us I mean we were kind of copying what the Beatles did in that we used the studio as a creative tool for mm. us. It became part of the band. Um, and with the technology expanded, you know, the Deceptive Benz album was basically just three of us in the studio, myself, Eric, and uh, Paul Burgess on drums. Um, and it worked, re- worked really, really well. I mean, the studio was kind of half-built as well. It was re- That album was recorded under very weird circumstances. Mm. Um but the creative spark was there, and that's really all that matters. So, you know, it's, we were using a um, an old uh, a desk from a, a, an old Stones, Rolling Stones mobile, I think, a oh, Neve cool. desk. That was only a small thing. There was an engineer in that hanging out the back of it most of the time because <laughs> it was going wrong. <laughs> However, it sounded great. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had the zeitgeist at that time, and... Um, it was a very, it was a great album to make because it was coming off the back of a time when, well, Kevin and Kevin and Lala just left the band, so we felt it was quite a challenge to sort of prove ourselves that we could carry on uh, without them. It was, it, it was different without them, obviously, but um, we did, we did very well after that. Some of those things where you add a harmony on, or there's one little musical part that happens. Sometimes yeah. that only happens in the studio, doesn't it? When you've got it, yeah, it would only there. happen in the studio. That, that's right. That's right. I mean, obviously, you know, at the heart of everything is the song. The song is yeah. king, and uh, um, you know, before we'd actually start recording, we would we would finish the song. We didn't want to, um, you know. I was always pretty keen that we had even all the lyrics and everything rather than going oh don't worry we'll we'll get it later on because that can change everything as i say you know so many elements going to what a song is mm. and one can affect the other uh very much and um all the elements have got to be right to as much as as you can get them as you want them mm. um and uh you know then the rest is uh up to fate really what what happens but you do your best, you record it to the best of your ability. And uh, I mean, I've always used that principle, just do what you do best. And really, I'm serious about this, do your very, very best. Um, <laughs> or you w- work with the best people and um, you're giving yourself the best chance. And then what mm. happens next is uh, out of your hands. Yeah, see, but give the song the best start, I think, I guess. The best education before it leaves home, I guess. The be- yes, if you like. The song is, is king and has to be served. Uh, and of course, ultimately, whether your album is a million seller or mm. sells, you know, 500, it's still got your name on it. Mm. And it's it's a part of you and, and you want to be 
sure that that uh, you, what you want people to to enjoy it and know that you did good work. You'd mentioned with the track on the new album, we you'd started with the title and gone backwards. And t- yes. titles seem quite an important thing throughout your career. There's so many, and I think the the Beatles used to talk about this as well. Where if you have a title that grabs someone's attention, then you you're partway yeah. there with the song already. So is that quite a, a common procedure for you to to think of a title yeah. or or be influenced to have a title and go from there? It, it's yeah. I mean, it, it's it's just one of the starting points of a song I mean quite often if I'm writing on my own I'm just sort of sitting down with the guitar and just messing around until something like the chord sequence happens and then the chord sequence suggests a mood that suggests a lyric and then if it's got the got its own legs it'll take you off onto that mysterious road that you go down and where you suddenly find out you've got a big chunk of a song. Hmm. Um, so it can be, there's so many different ways. I mean, you can, you can have an idea for a song, say like standing next to me, which is from a real experience. Um, or another, I mean, a, a, a classic example of a song that was written, from a title is I'm Not In Love, which yeah. uh, Eric Stewart came up with uh, after a discussion about we'd never written a ballad. I always thought we could write a great ballad, and uh, but we didn't want it to be the obvious, and mm. Eric came up with a sort of perfect title, really. Wall Street Shuffle's another one that comes to mind. Was that sparked from something overheard? Yeah, that was sparked from actually being in New York and going over crossing Wall Street, uh, this was the original four of us yeah. back in the early 70s. And I don't know who it was, but someone said, do the Wall Street Shuffle. Yeah. And then you think, you don't go, oh, I must write a song called the Wall <laughs> Street Shuffle. But further down the line, you um, you know, you, you, you think about what should we write about? We go, oh, well, yeah, do you remember when we were in New York? You said that thing, that Wall Street Shuffle thing. What's that all about? You know, and then you go, well, we know what the idea for the song is about finances and, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, another example of that is um, Dreadlock Holiday, where I was in uh, on holiday in um, in Jamaica talking to a someone I met there, and we're talking about sports and Manchester United, and I said, what about cricket? Do you, you like cricket? He said, no, I don't like cricket. I said, oh, I'm surprised. He said, I love it. <laughs> and now... It just gave me the line, I thought. And and then I sort of kept it in my mind because it was amusing and it was so... <laughs> I, I love that idea of I don't like something. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, and when we started writing the song, um, that when it got to the chorus, I knew exactly what I was going to sing. Mm. And those ideas are just around then, as you say, for when the moment they comes They just up arrive, to... yeah. And that that's the, the sort of why it was that melody and it arrived like that. But, you know, a lot of what happens in the right, in the creative process is, mm. is a mystery to me. And uh, I want it to remain that way as well. I don't like to analyze it too much. So do you have this, the, a similar process for songwriting or does it, do you still at this I, point keep it quite ethereal? There's no process because, like one of the songs I wrote in my head um, without thinking I'm going to write a song in my head now. 
I, I'd actually heard a, um, I was walking home uh, and there was a radio on in the distance. Uh, all I, and because it was just sort of, there was no top end. It was just like a rhythm mm. that I heard. And, and the rhythm suggested this chord sequence. And then I got this melody. Um, and by the time I got home, I, I, knew, I, had the, I had the main bulk of the song. Hmm. Um, and the idea was that I was going to just continue with this one sort of verse and write different melodies on these verse chords, but it didn't work out. And um, but I loved what I'd got so yeah. far, so I, I finished the song off with uh, with Ian Hornell. Song called it's the last track on the album called New Star. Oh, great. One of the things I've always loved about your songs, particularly going right the way back to the, the mid-60s, uh, how great your intros are. Um, and, yeah. And even at points where the intro actually then doesn't reappear much or at all in the rest of the song. So I'm thinking of things like uh, Bus Stop, I think that happens. You have that fantastic yeah. intro. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's got, which people don't tend yeah, to do very much, but I love it. I know. I, I don't know why that happens. Um, but I, I, a lot of the time I would... A song would start off with a, a guitar riff, like mm. uh, "Half of the Soul," uh, in particular, and, and like "Evil Hearted You," um, a really strong, like this is the mood of the song. This is it. Get ready, you know. Kind yeah. of, this is going to be dark, man. <laughs> you know, uh, I love that. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the intros are, are very important, and I, I think those early '60s songs. More, more the songs I wrote uh, uh, in the sixties, I think, more than more than anything else. Mm. That um, uh, they're, they're they're very, you know, they're like a signature. Like this is what's coming. Um, get ready. <laughs> I guess it had to be very immediate, didn't it, at that point in the sixties? Because there was it's got to be immediate. Yeah, so yeah. much music happening. I, I mean, so much like, like the, the 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 intro to "Standing Next to Me" is a kind of a. I'm telling you, this is a Beatley plus kind of Bowie-esque start to the song. Yeah. You know, there's like a mixture of two things there. There's the kind of the... Because I, I don't know, when looking back on it, sometimes you do something. So I had this... Which is a very McCartney kind of line. Mm. So there's the Beatles thing, and then the da 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 same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and then when I look back on it, I thought, "Oh, you are clever," because what you've done, you've you've mixed like the Beatles and David Bowie, and the fame thing is quite important because being with Ringo Starr. One of the probably one of the most famous persons or people on the planet. Yeah. So that was a kind of a. I wasn't thinking it when I did the that guitar riff, but it, as it happens, I I sort of realised that maybe subconsciously I was adding the fame bit to the you know to that intro. So there's I mean like so in that in that intro I mean we. You know, you can talk about the intro for quite a long time, and it's only like eight bars of music, but it, it's sort of quite significant, really. And wasn't Fame the one that Bowie was influenced by Lennon in the studio together? Yeah. So is that this great sort of that, through line of it? That's great. That, that's right. So there's a um, 
there's a there's a, a nice link there, isn't there? I must just quickly ask you about uh, "For Your Love," which I believe was yeah. one of one of was it your first song or certainly one of your first songs? Which... Yeah, the, well, the first song that I had um, recorded by another artist, and that ended up with the Yardbirds. It did. And am I right in thinking that was part of the reason for Eric Clapton parting ways with the Yardbirds? That was. Uh, it was. I think I. I, I don't, it wasn't the prime reason. I think it was the last straw. <laughs> it was ready to go uh, anyway. Yeah. The last. He was. Yeah. He was ready to bolt, <laughs> and um, because he didn't. He was at that time uh, uh, a sort of purist. You know, mm. he he thought they were going in. He wanted them to keep their their blues roots and. Um, well, what can I say other than that the greatest guitarist that ever lived took his place? <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a story about the band that you were in at the time as uh, we warm up act on top of the pops. Yeah, we were we were the warm up band, uh, you know, because they used to take time to set up the lights and everything yeah. before recording the show. And uh, yeah, one one week we were on uh, our band was the Mockingbirds. It was a band I was in with Kevin Godley and. Uh, so we were the warm-up band, and the Yardbirds were on doing "For Your Love." Kind of slightly surreal, but I was delighted. Well, I can imagine you were. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Graham, that's been so interesting to talk to you. That's fantastic. What? Just remind us again. You'll have those tour dates coming up um, later in the year when yes. things are well, back to normal. Well, the half of the songs date, dates have been rescheduled for September, and um, the ten CC dates that we lost um, for the European tour are, are happening early. Uh, 2021 uh, but our websites will have all the info i haven't got that in front of me at the moment great um and at the moment then as in this kind of isolated we're all locked away are you finding that a, a creative time or or not so much not really no because really i've been spending you know spent a lot of time creatively in the studio this past sort of 12 months yeah. on and off with the recording the uh, the modesty for bids album so uh, I've got a guitar. I'm picking it up occasionally, just plonking away a bit, and cool. um, we'll see what happens. Maybe something will come out of it. Um, but I'm uh, really focusing on, you know, getting back to work. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm missing really. Yeah. Um, but we're managing fine and uh, watching lots of box sets and like everybody else. <laughs> Songwriting collaborations via Skype or whatever might be the way forward for a while, I guess. Well, that that would be lovely and that's something I'm looking forward to doing as well. In fact, uh, I recorded some of the Heartful of Songs rehearsals, so we, we're putting those out um, now and again, some of the stuff from there. But what I'd really like to do at some point is to get some of the boys around and just do some sort of little, you know, mm. put some stuff up online uh, just to, uh, as well as for our fans, you know, just to, you know, for ourselves, just to uh, keep us busy and feel we're doing something positive and something that might, you know, people might enjoy. Great. Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Okay, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, till next time, goodbye.